And let's praise the, the, the name of the, the Lord this morning. Jesus, we come to you and we praise and worship and adore you. Lord Jesus, we thank you that uh, you came and that you were born. But uh, we thank you that you are so much more than uh, just a baby in, in a manger. We praise you that you're Lord of Lords and, and King of Kings, that you are the eternal God who left heaven and came to earth and became a man, and you've lived the life that we failed to live. You died the death that we deserve to die, but you rose and you ascended, and you're glorious and you rule and, and, and you reign as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Lord, help us to love you, to worship you, to trust you, to honor you. Uh, to, to live uh, for you and, and, and for your glory. And God, I pray, Lord, that you'd speak to us uh, through your word this morning, that you would work in us, that you would cause us to respond to you in the ways that we need to. Lord, that you would uh, give us faith and that you'd help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. And you'd help us to live our lives daily as living sacrifices. So Jesus, we give you praise and we thank you for all uh, the blessings of this season and uh, for the blessings of this year. And we, we pray, Lord, for those that this may be a, a difficult season for whatever reason that you administer to them, that you would give them your grace. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Have a seat and welcome and uh, Merry Christmas. And, uh, you know, if there's any, like, uh, it, seats, <laughs> empty seats, maybe you might just scoot together in case anybody else comes in, but uh, we're really glad that you're with us and glad that you're spending part of Christmas with us. Uh, we're doing things a little bit different today and that there's not going to be like a normal full-scale 30 to 40 minute uh, uh, sermon. Basically, we're going to intersperse uh, music and little bits of teaching to uh, kind of share the Christmas story in, in, in that way. And, uh, you know, as we, as we think about Christmas, it's, it's a special time. Uh, of course, you know, a lot of our kids are upstairs with us. I think kids are what make Christmas uh, special. Uh, I know it's fun for us that we have a little one, uh, you know, around again since we, we have a, a, a grandson. And, um, you know, seven months ago, I thought grandparents were silly. <laughs> now I think I'm silly. Uh, but, uh, it, you know, it's a lot of fun, even though he doesn't understand it yet. Uh, you know, he's like a little kid. It's like, you know, I get to rip some paper and play with the box and try to eat the box because he's six and a half months old. But, uh, you know, kids, I mean, when I was a, a kid, I mean, I love Christmas so much. My parents were really good at, at making it special and just the gifts and the, the stuff, the food that my mom would make and all that kind of thing. And, and, and all that is wonderful. But I, I want us also to focus on, you know, what Christmas is ultimately uh, truly about, which is uh, the birth of a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because really, if uh, Jesus didn't come and die to redeem us and to forgive us and give us eternal life, anything in this life, however good it is, is only fleeting and momentary, and it's not going to last forever. So 
I want us to think about today, you know, who Jesus is, what he's done for us, the gift of eternal life that he offers us. We read Matthew 1, 18 through 25 before. And so I just want to point out just, you know, just some basic things from that, like I said, interspersed with music. And so, you know, the first thing that we need to know about, uh, you know, the Christmas story and what the Bible claims uh, about this is that Jesus was conceived of a virgin. If Look at Matthew 1 uh, again, Matthew 1, 18 through 20. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. In other words, it happened like this. It says, after his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph before they came together. And just a quick review there. We talked about this in Luke, but not everybody was around then, so you may not be familiar with this. In, in, in Jewish culture of that day, betrothal was kind of like engagement on steroids. It, it was basically like, in, in some sense, you were legally married, you were bound to each other. But they spent a year in this betrothal period where they didn't live together, they didn't consummate the marriage, but it, it's like they were married in the sense that, you know, it took a divorce uh, to actually break it, and uh, for someone to be unfaithful in that time would be considered adultery. So this is where they were, and it says, you know, in that time period, she was found with child, so she's pregnant. But the Bible's claim is this pregnancy was not through the normal biological course, uh, that it didn't involve a man, that she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. This is Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. So basically what that means is he couldn't marry her because then it would look like that he had impregnated her. He could have had her stoned for adultery, he was a righteous man, though he didn't want to do that. He, he, he loved her. So he was, going to, going, he was just going to divorce her uh, privately. But it says, while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, sometimes, and this is why the Bible is so important, we think one thing, but really what we need to hear is what God has to say. And, and, and Joseph heard from God, he obeyed God, because ultimately what this text is claiming to be is a fulfillment of Isaiah 7, 14. It says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name uh, Emmanuel. And, and so, you know, the, the claim here, the word that's used in Matthew chapter 1 is, is translated virgin, that, that she was a virgin, she had never known a man, yet she was pregnant, but but, you know, this pregnancy came by the result of a supernatural act of God. John MacArthur, in his book, The Miracle of Christmas, puts it this way. He says, No other fact in the Christmas story is more important than the virgin birth. The virgin birth must have happened exactly the way Scripture says. Otherwise, Christmas has no point at all. If Jesus is simply the illegitimate child of Mary's infidelity, or even if he is the child of Joseph's natural marital union with Mary, he is not God. If he is not God, his claims are lies. If his claims are lies, his salvation is a hoax. And if his salvation is a hoax, then we are all doomed. So it's the idea that we're not saved by the virgin birth, but we cannot be saved apart from the virgin birth. Because the virgin birth was the vehicle through which the incarnation took place. And remember we talked about this last week. The word incarnate means uh, to, to add flesh. 
Jesus, the eternal Word, the eternal God, added flesh, came as a man, the God-man, through the mechanism of the virgin birth. Fully God, fully man, untainted by sin. Now, we stand on what the Bible teaches about that. But at the same time, realize there's a lot of questions about that that really can't be answered. There's a wonder and a mystery to it all that we don't want to lose sight of. You know, really, Joseph and Mary were wrestling with that on the first Christmas. They're trying to figure it out. I mean, Mary believed the Lord, but she said, how can, this, how can these things be? Joseph had one thought. It took an angel, uh, you know, giving him a dream for him to look at it this way. So they're trying to figure this mystery out. We're still trying to figure this mystery out. But let's stand and let's sing about this mystery. All right, you can have a seat again. And... Um, you know, I think that's a, a great lead-in to the second truth that we're going to look at in this text, that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Not, not just another man, not just uh, a little baby boy, but it says in verse 22 and 23 that all of this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And in other words, you know, when, uh, when God gave a prophecy... It's basically like he's writing history in advance. And then he's orchestrating things to bring it about. And it's what we read in Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And so, again, one of the unique claims about Christianity and if you're, if you're not a Christian, I just encourage you to think through this today. I mean, it's a very unique claim that someone would claim to be born of, of a virgin. And obviously we know that's not scientific and that's not normally how things work, but that's the claim that it's miraculous, that it's supernatural. Because the claim is also, again, that Jesus is not just a mere man, not just a mere mortal, not just a good teacher or a prophet but that he's God come in human flesh. Again, and MacArthur puts it this way. He says, I don't suppose anyone can ever fathom what it means for God to be born in a manger. <clears throat> Excuse me. How does one explain the Almighty stooping to become a tiny infant? It was, of course, the greatest condescension the world has ever known or will ever know. Our minds cannot begin to understand what was involved in God becoming a man. We will never comprehend why he, was, he, was, he, why he was infinitely rich, would become poor, assume a human nature, and enter into a world he knew would reject him and kill him. Nor can anyone explain how God could become a baby. Yet he did. Without forsaking his divine nature or diminishing his deity in any sense, he was born into our world as a tiny infant. People often ask me if I think he cried or if he needed the normal care and feeding one would give any other baby. Of course he did. He was fully human with all the needs and emotions that are common to every human. Yet, he was also fully God, all-wise and all-powerful. How can both things be true? I don't know, but the Bible clearly teaches that it is so. 
In some sense, Jesus voluntarily suspended the full application of his divine attributes. He didn't give up being God, but he willingly gave up the independent use of the privileges and powers that were his as God. He chose to subjugate his will to his Father's will. Through all that, he remained fully God. The Bible puts it this way in Hebrew, or I'm sorry, Philippians 2, 5 through 8. It says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And really, he, he's talking about the humility of Christ. And he's saying, follow that example. But here, here's how he explains that. He says, who being in the form of God, which literally means who being in very nature God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Or literally what it's saying is he did not consider it something to be grasped or to held on, be held on to. Uh, to, to, to have this position of equality with the Father like he had throughout eternity. He, he humbled himself. He submitted himself to the Father and coming as a man, placed himself under the law. It says he made himself of no reputation, literally emptied himself of the outward display of deity, of the independent uh, use of his divine attributes. It says, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. I mean, think about it. Going from being eternally worshipped in heaven to coming as a little baby. But he didn't stop there. I mean, he, he really humbles himself even farther because it says in being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. That's how far he went, how low he went for us. I mean, the cross was... Uh, just the lowest form of death that someone could experience in the Roman Empire, the worst form of death, death by, by torture, really. Also, the Bible says in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, it says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus is our high priest who passed through the heavens. He came from heaven to earth. It says, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. That means he's been through what we've been through. He's experienced what we've experienced. He's been tempted and tried and tested and betrayed. He suffered. He, 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 he's hurt. I mean, the Bible says in the next chapter in Hebrews that he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. So he understands. He sympathizes with us. He empathizes with us. I mean, when we're hurting, it's good to have someone we can go to that's been through something like what we've been through. Right? That's who we want to talk. We don't want to talk to, I mean, if you're going through a really hard time, you don't really necessarily want to talk to somebody that's life, there's always a bed of roses for them, never had any problems. You want to find somebody that's been through what you've been through. And that's what this is saying about Jesus. He's been through what we've been through. So it says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So the idea is, is that Jesus is not a mere man or not just another religious leader. He is Almighty God who came from heaven to earth. That's the essence of Christmas. He is the God-man who can make an infinite yet personal substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. 
He's also the God-man who intercedes when we pray, but he understands and sympathizes when we pray. Why? Because he's experienced the pain that we experience in a fallen world. You see, the good news of Christmas is that Jesus is not this aloof, far-removed, way-out-there, pie-in-the-sky kind of God. But he is Emmanuel. You can have a seat again. You can get some exercise this morning before you have your Christmas Eve dinner. Um, so those um, truths lead to really what is ultimately the point and uh, the, the purpose uh, of Christmas, which is expressed in verse 21, that Jesus came to save us from our sins. Look again at what verse 21 says. It says, She will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And really, the, the significance of this is that you know, normally in that day and time, a firstborn son would be named after the father. Maybe occasionally the grandfather, but, but normally would be named after the father. And, uh, you know, we, we saw, you saw this in Luke chapter 1 when everybody expected John to be named Zacharias until he said, no, his name's going to be John because this is what God had said. And so why were they told to name him Jesus? It's because of the meaning of the word. Uh, Jesus in Hebrew is Joshua or Yeshua. And it means that Jehovah is salvation. So it was a very an intentional name because why? He's called Jesus because he's coming to save his people from their sins. That's the ultimate reason as to why he was born. It's not the only reason that he came, but it's the biggest reason uh, th that he came. Again, MacArthur puts it this way. He says, here's a side to the Christmas story that isn't often told. Those soft little hands fashioned by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb were made so that nails might be driven through them. Those baby feet Pink and unable to walk, would one day walk up a dusty hill to be nailed to a cross. That sweet infant's head with sparkling eyes and eager mouth was formed so that someday men might force a crown of thorns onto it. That tender body, warm and soft, wrapped in swaddling clothes, would one day be ripped open by a spear. And, and I think when you begin to think about it that way, because, you know, I mean, almost everybody's a sucker for a little baby, right? Uh, I mean, they're cute and cuddly and sweet and those kind of things. But you think about, you know, this little baby looked like any other little Jewish boy being born at that time. That he was being born for the express purpose of all of those things someday happening to him for us. That he was dying to pay for our sins. He was being cursed with our curse. He was going to experience the wrath of God that we had earned. That's why he was born. And listen, he came with full knowledge and willing sacrifice to accept this mission. You know, the Bible tells us that. If you've got a Bible, look at Hebrews chapter 10 for a minute. There's, there's an amazing passage there where it's quoting from the Old Testament, but it's like 
It's almost like a conversation between the Father and the Son. As Jesus willingly accepts this assignment, and this is how it describes it. In Hebrews 10.5, it says, Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. You see, because the Old Testament sacrifices were never intended to save. They were only intended to be a picture of revelation of what the Messiah was going to come and do for us. A picture of the fact that it took a blood sacrifice. It took uh, the life of the innocent and life of the, uh, in place of the guilty to bring forgiveness and, and, and redemption. But the Jews got caught up in their religious system and their rituals, and they weren't trusting God, and, and they were missing the Messiah. All of that was supposed to be pointing to Jesus. He, he says, sacrifice and offering you do not desire. The Bible says it's not by the blood of, of bulls and goats that we're redeemed. But he says, but, you, but a body you have prepared for me. In other words, this body was prepared for him to offer himself up as a sacrifice. He said, in burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I've come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. And what was God's will? God's will was for him to be this sacrifice. Jesus says, I'll sign up for that. I'll do that. Now, just to think ahead for a second, remember in the Garden of Gethsemane? The night before he's crucified, when he's wrestling with this, he's saying, if there's any way possible, let this cup pass from me. He's sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. He'd already agreed to do this. That just shows the horror that he was experiencing. He who knew no sin, becoming sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This text goes on to say, previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire nor have pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. In other words, he's taking away the old covenant. He's bringing in a new covenant of grace. And it says, by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. How are we made right with God? Not through religious rituals, not through keeping the law, not through the sacrificial system. It's through the once-for-all sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he was born. Hebrews 2.9 says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, which refers back to Psalm 8. It's a way of saying he, he became a human being uh, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, for the grace of God, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. John 129, John saw him coming and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Listen, if we know that we're sinners, if we know that we're guilty before a holy God, the best news we could ever hear is that a Savior has come. I saw this on a Christmas card several years ago, but it bears repeating. It says, If our greatest need had been information, God would have sent an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. But since our greatest need was for forgiveness, God sent us a Savior. So the point of Christmas is that Jesus was born so that we can be born again. Jesus was born to die 
so that we can live. So that's why we worship and adore His great name. The name of Jesus, Jehovah, is salvation. Amen. Praise the name of Jesus. You can have a seat one more time. Um, just want to end with this. Just want you to think about one more thing, and then we'll, we'll close with a song in a few minutes. But, uh, you know, again, when, when Christians talk about, you know, the virgin birth and God becoming man and dying for our sins and, and, and rising from the dead, Obviously, these are, are, are really big, audacious kind of claims. And, and, and so, at some point, the question is, are these true? Are they true? And then what do you believe? And, and if you say that you believe this, what have you done with it? How have you acted on it? And so, the last thing I want you to think about this morning, the last thing I want to encourage you to do is at Christmas this year to receive the greatest gift of all, which is God's gift of eternal life. That's the point of this. Jesus offers himself as a gift. He offers us the gift of salvation and forgiveness and eternal life. And, you know, the thing about a gift is a true gift is freely given, freely received, right? I, I doubt if any of you are, are going to open any Christmas presents uh, today or tomorrow and then you know, pull out some money and say, here, uh, I'm paying you for it now. That, that's not a gift. You're not making a deal. You're not making a trade. If it's a gift, someone has just chosen to give this to you uh, out of the goodness of their heart or begrudging obligation or, or whatever uh, it, it may be at, at Christmas. But God gave us this gift out of the goodness, the love. I mean, just something we didn't. I mean, God didn't give us this gift of Jesus because we're so good or because we're family or because we were friends. We were at enmity with God. We've rebelled against him. We've all sinned and gone our own way. And so God offers us this gift, but you can always turn a gift down. Right? A gift has to be received. I mean, you could say, somebody can offer you something, you can say no. There's a story in American history where there was a man who was convicted uh, of multiple robberies of like the Pony Express back in the 1800s. It was during Andrew Jackson's uh, presidency, and uh, he was in prison. Uh, but President Jackson pardoned him, but he refused the pardon. The case went all the way to the United States Supreme Court, in which they ultimately ruled that if he didn't want to be pardoned and he wanted to stay in jail, he had that right, and you can't you know, force a pardon on somebody. If he says no, he doesn't get to receive that blessing. And so if we say no to Jesus, we miss the gift that God offers us. Don't do that. Listen, this is what we need to know. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. You know, a wage is what we earn. If you're working a job and you work 40 hours and you're making $25 an hour, your wage is $1,000. You've earned that. It's what you get for what you do. 
Well, the Bible says what we get for our sin is death, spiritual death, which is separation from God, eternal separation from God. But the gift of God is eternal life, but it's only in Jesus Christ, our Lord, because he said, I'm you know, the only way to the Father. Why do we need this? Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the bad news, but the good news is Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his love toward us that even while we were still sinners, that Christ died for us. Romans 1.4, that he was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. On the cross, Jesus purchased our redemption. He won uh, the victory. He secured our forgiveness. And then the, the resurrection was God's great announcement, God's great confirmation that Jesus truly is the Son of God, that he truly is the Savior of the world, that he truly, genuinely made a sufficient sacrifice for our sins. He's the once for all sacrifice. He accomplished it. Then what do we need to do? Romans 10, 9 says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, or some translations would say that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10, 13, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So my question is, do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? who died for you and rose from the dead? And if so, have you called on His name? Ask Him to forgive you. Ask Him to save you. Have you confessed Him as Lord? Which means basically you're surrendering to Him and saying, Jesus, I've messed up my life. I don't need to go my own way anymore. I want you to be in control. You're my Lord. You're my God. Come and save me. Come and take control of me. And He says that if we come to Him, He's not going to cast us out. He's going to receive us. Have you come to him by faith?